Listening to Open Up the Wall, Revelations of a Renovation Contractor. Now, this is what they call a quote, inspirational memoir. It's about my career change from award-winning actor to the owner of my own construction company. It's definitely a memoir, and throughout the 14 episodes of this podcast, you're gonna meet some wonderful characters on both sides of the tool belt. This podcast is an edited version of the 27-chapter book of the same title. And it's available in e-form or hard copy. You can find out more about the book and about me, the author, Jeff Bowes, on my website, www.openupthewall.com. Feel free to leave any questions or comments you may have. I'd love to hear from you. So by episode six, I'd more or less reached my stride as a renovator. It was clear to me that I was on a never-ending learning curve, so I had the good sense to just take the jobs I knew I could do well. I had clients of my own now. I took pride in my work, and the sense of self-worth that came with making my clients happy was a totally new and different sense of satisfaction for me, even if some of my clients were high-maintenance, like the ones around Christmas time. But I got through it, so on with the learning curve, and... On to episode seven, the addition of death. Stan called me in June about working with him on a second story addition. That is taking the roof off a bungalow and building a new second story where the roof used to be. And then, of course, building a new roof on the new story. On the degree of difficulty scale, any addition above the first floor is a 10 out of 10. For the general contractor, the stress level is way past 10. It's easier to build a house from the ground up than it is to tear off a roof and tiptoe around on two-inch wide joists, building another story, especially with a family living below, separated by a half-inch of drywall ceiling. I had no idea what Stan was going through keeping this job moving, but as time went on, I began to see a different side of my easy-going friend. The first step was to get rid of the roof by cutting through the shingles and the plywood with skill saws, pushing them from the bottom of the roof to the peak, being careful not to cut the roof rafters. Stan had hired a third guy, Mason, and he carried the cut-up chunks of roof to the edge of the wall and pitched them into the dumpster below. Mason was a cellist, and demolition was his day job. He always had his shirt off so that the world could see the tattoo of a snake that coiled from the small of his back under his arm and around to his belly button. Now, whenever I'm at the symphony, I wonder what is beneath a musician's formal attire. Why does that violinist always wear a long sleeve gown? Did I just see a flash of tattoo when the timpani player raised his arms? Pushing my saw through the roof for the umpteenth time that morning, she suddenly stopped. Dead. I was sad to see it die. It was my first power tool, and we started a new life together, and I felt remorse at having taxed the poor thing too hard, so I took off the housing to see if I could fix it. Stan called over from his side of the roof. What's going on over there? I burned out my saw. It's the first one I ever bought. Go get another one, he said with some impatience. I couldn't blame him. 
We were racing against the clock and the elements. A roof has to be completely removed in one day so that huge tarps can cover the floor, which is technically the ceiling of the floor below. Things are pretty tense for a couple of days until the new subfloor goes on where the roof used to be. At least at this point, there's a covering that won't blow away. I roared off to the nearest big box store and I bought the same kind of saw as stands. Very precise, very heavy duty. $325. Then I roared back to the roof and worked through lunch because I could see that Stan was getting very tense. When the roof was all sliced up and pitched into the dumpster, we had to walk on the two-inch wide joist that spanned the width of the house and held the ceiling to the rooms below. We tiptoed across these joints while we screwed down a plywood subfloor. The joists were spaced 16 inches apart. Mason slipped and put his foot through the bathroom ceiling. Even though this is a somewhat regular occurrence when walking on roof joists, it was still an expense that Stan would have to cover. Anyway, he kept a sense of humor about it. But then, it was as if God was out to test us, Old Testament style. First came the wasps, displaced from their nests in the rafters, swarming and stinging. With nowhere to escape, the best I could do was lie face down in the loose insulation between the joists, cover my face, and get stung six times. And then the gale-forced wind came up while we carried sheets of plywood across the roof. We fought to keep our footing as we walked on the two-inch joists, praying not to lose balance and step through the ceiling again. But I did, and this time Stan was furious. When we finally got the plywood subfloor glued and screwed, we were visited by torrential rains. And after a night of downpour, Stan called me really early. Get over here right now with every bucket, rag, and mop you've got. We'd covered the entire deck with thick plastic, and we'd stapled it down before we left the day before. I don't know how or where the rain got through, but it soaked the dwelling below. The hardwood floors in the hallway were wet and warped beyond saving. When the rain stopped, we waited a day or two for things to dry out, and then we started framing the walls. Stan was having a lot of trouble cutting and fitting the dormers, and Mason and I frustrated him further by framing the window opening to the wrong dimensions. Each one of us had gashed our legs on the same nail sticking out from the stairwell, and we all considered this a bad omen. Nothing was going according to plan, and things were getting really tense. While I was putting up a short hip rafter on the roof, my long framing hammer prevented me from turning around in the tight space, and as I was afraid that the damn thing was going to lever me right off the roof, just to be on the safe side, I took the hammer from my tool belt and I put it on the five and a half inch wide wall that I was standing on top of. Stan walked underneath, just as I turned my foot and knocked the hammer off the wall, narrowly missing his head. I was aware of how close I had come to killing him, and so was he. The thing is, I've never been in a situation before or since where I felt forced to take my hammer out of my belt. This job had bad karma all over it. I hated going to work. None of us liked each other anymore, and Mason and I were totally out of sync with each other's rhythms. I found myself longing for Ken. The day after I considered the possibility that I could die on this job, Mason and I botched another wall. One small piece of plywood sheathing was missing from above the framed window, and incredibly nobody had noticed it. 
At this point, I was starting to believe in evil spirits. Anyway, it fell to me to get a long, long ladder, go up and nail a piece of plywood into the place above the second floor window frame. I had to put the ladder in the neighbor's yard just to get a safe enough climbing angle, resting it on the wall above the window. Carefully pushing a three-foot by two-foot sheet of plywood ahead of me, I climbed to the top of the window frame. That went well. I lifted the wood into position. That went well. I started nailing it into place. And with the first blow of the hammer, I felt the ladder slip down. I said, oh, no. And the ladder said, oh, yes, I'm slipping down. I guess you didn't notice that you put my feet by the neighbor's garbage cans. Greasy, slippery. I froze. That's not going to help, said the ladder. It's simple physics. I have to slide down to the ground. That means you have to come up with a plan in about two seconds. I watched as the top of the ladder slowly slid closer to the edge of the window. My only chance was to make a leap for the window frame and pull myself through. Don't push off with your feet, said the ladder. That'll send me flying. And frankly, I will be glad to hit the ground and have somebody put me away. I'm overextended as it is. I don't have to tell you, this job sucks. Everything is going wrong. Anyway, good luck. I'm out of here. I let myself fall forward, and I just made it to the window frame as the ladder slid to the ground 20 feet below. My chest and arms were over the window frame, but the rest of me dangled from the second floor wall. There was no foothold for my feet, so I kind of inchwormed my way up the window frame until my tool belt got caught on the windowsill. Somehow I got my knee on the ledge and I rolled my body sideways through the window frame. And when I finally fell to the floor, I was gasping for air. And I don't know why, I was furious. Stan came and stood over me. What's going on? You hurt? I told him what had happened. Jesus, why didn't you call me? I was around the corner. I was ten feet away. Nobody heard me because I didn't call for help, and I didn't call for help because I had been holding my breath the whole time. What a weird thing to do. Nothing was right about this place. This is all so fucked up, I shouted. Somebody's going to fucking die on this fucking idiot job site. Stan walked away. When I went to get the ladder from the neighbor's yard, a man in a t-shirt with a picture of Ronald McDonald on it swung the door open. He stepped outside and he said, This is private property. I threw the ladder to the ground. I let out a furious howl to the sky. Then I turned back to the neighbor, but he was already back inside. The nights turned into sleepless hell as I was jolted awake by dreams of falling. Then I would lie awake, going through what I had to do the next day and devising strategies as how I could stay safe. I was waking up tired. I was going to work tense. And it didn't get any better. The owner of the house wanted to pitch in and help. That's always a stupid move. He lasted a couple of hours before he had a serious accident, spent the next three months with his arm in a sling. Stan was short-tempered, and I was too inexperienced to understand the stress he was under, dealing with the rain catastrophe and the insurance companies, and all the while keeping the job moving forward. We were all polite with each other, but inside we wanted to kill each other. The devil was in our midst. We were still framing and fixing stupid mistakes when Stan got a call. I heard him say, 
You can have him right now. He got off his phone, and he told me to take all my tools and go and do some carpentry for a man called Bruce. That was the last I saw of Stan for two years. And the voices in my head had a field day. Actually, you got fired. You didn't fit in. In the end, your mother was right, Jeffrey. What are you going to do now? Go back to acting? Can't do anything else, can you? A commercial, maybe. Perhaps you could be a spokesman for a cookie or something, because it has just been confirmed that you are no good with your hands. I had come so far that I knew I couldn't go back. I couldn't waste the excitement and the sense of satisfaction that this learning curve had given me. I had to take stock and figure out how I was going to proceed on my own. On my own. It was a bit of a shock to think it out loud. Up until now, I had been an employee-slash-student of Stan. Sure, I'd gone off to do things on my own, but I always had the safety net of Stan's experience— and his friendship, and I relied heavily on both of them. Hey, Stan, what's the code for stair railing height? Hey, Stan, could you show me how to do this? Hey, Stan, can I borrow your planer? The safety net was definitely gone now. I would have liked to have stayed home that night and prepare for my new job, but we had symphony tickets. The concert hall was crawling with Jeffries, so I counted blazers for a while, and then I read the program notes on Anton Dvorak. Early in his career as a composer, he was supported and encouraged by Johannes Brahms, who wrote great symphonies but ended up being famous for a lullaby. Only when Dvorak left the comfort of his mentor and moved to America did he focus completely on himself and write his New World Symphony. That was what was going on in my head. I wanted that to happen to me. I was desperate to stay in this business, to excel on my own and find the kind of personal satisfaction that Anton Dvorak must have found when he finished his New World Symphony and said, wow, this is really good. I never knew I had it in me. Something like that. Anything like that. Because I wasn't going to quit working with my hands. I wasn't going to give up the sense of self-worth that this trade had given me. I was comfortable at last when I was building things. And there was no way I was going to go back to a life of anxiety and self-doubt. Oh, I hope they like the audition. I thought it went well. They seemed to like me. One of them smiled at me. Oh, God, I hope they give it to me. I didn't want to wait for the phone to ring anymore. I didn't want to go to summer festivals and entertain rich people for six nights and two afternoons a week. I made my own schedule now. I had the ability to build people things that they wanted. I was articulate and considerate. I had a fair number of tools. If I could just keep my insecurity at bay, I had the makings of a fulfilling life right in front of me. So the next morning when I went to meet Bruce... I was going as myself, not as Stan's helper. I followed a bent street sign that read Memory Lane. A drug dealer and his pit bull watched me from the corner as I drove down what amounted to an alley filled with potholes and littered with empties. Halfway down, I found the address on the door of a cinderlock. Halfway down, I found the address on the door of a cinderblock warehouse with a solid locked gate. I pressed the buzzer and a voice came back. What? I'm Jeff. I, uh, oh, hi. I'll be right out. A man came out of the door and walked towards the gate with a huge ring of keys in his hand. He was clean shaven with curly black hair almost to his shoulders. I recognized him. He was the drummer in a famous country rock band. 
Hey, Jeff, I'm Bruce. I know. Oh, wow. I still have you guys on vinyl. Cool. I own this place now. Come on in. Bruce let me into a vast space filled with amplifiers, cables, microphone stands, pedals, preamps. Whatever a band needed for a single gig or a whole tour, Bruce could provide. He had also seen the need for a private space where a drummer could practice with his complete drum kit any time, day or night. So my job was to build four small rooms, each one just big enough to house a full drum kit and a music stand. I was to wire for a plug and a light in each room and put on a door with a good lock. The drummers would be listening to the music tracks in headsets so the little rooms didn't have to be soundproofed. How much? he asked. Let me take some measurements, I said. Then I'll get back to you. Now, an experienced contractor could have given a pretty accurate price simply by basing it on similar types of jobs he'd done in the past. Not me. I had no past on which to base anything. I would have to tally up the cost of every single board, screw, and nail that was going into this job. It would be time-consuming, but it's not rocket science. But if I were to leave something out, I would have to admit it to Bruce and then add the cost of my omission to his bottom line. Then, licensed professional would become incompetent old worker guy in the blink of an eye. I lay on the wood floor of my living room and visualized every bit of material that I would need. Then I turned onto my stomach and wrote it all down. Now for the hard part. How much to charge for labor? Well, how many hours to frame the walls of such a structure? I framed a lot of walls. I'd probably get it all done in a day, so eight hours. But I have to get all the lumber. Loading it all in here through the front door and down the hall is three more hours. Yeah, 11 hours for framing. So if I round it off to 12 hours, that will be 10 hours to do the framing and two hours on the front and back end for pickup, delivery, and cleanup. Sounds too high. The doors are going to take time because they all have to be cut down. So maybe I should push myself on the framing and leave the extra time for the doors. Okay, so eight hours for framing. Okay. I fretted my way through every aspect of the job. Lights, plugs, switches, insulation, drywall, door, lock, trim. Oh God, I forgot to add in the tax. That's going to bring the price up a lot. Maybe I should just absorb the tax. No, no, no. If I go any lower, he'll think that I'm conning my way into the job by lowballing it now and then hitting him with extra costs later on. And then he won't trust me anymore. And in the end, this business is all about trust. I added and subtracted and thought and visualized for a couple of hours before I had a price I was comfortable with. I emailed it to Bruce. His reply came back immediately. Start tomorrow, 8.30 a.m. I was relieved and happy. I had escaped the addition of death and I was going to do the kind of work that I really enjoyed, turning an empty space into something useful and really cool. The next morning, there was a beautiful summer sunrise as I pulled into a space in the contractor parking section of the Home Depot. At 7 a.m., we builders have the place to ourselves for a couple of hours before the civilians come by to get their bird seed and their picture wire. There's the smell of cigarettes, coffee, and lumber. There's laughter and instructions being barked at helpers. There are lots of groans and sighs as lumber or drywall or bags of concrete get heaved into beat-up trucks and vans. This is how the trades start the day, loading material that will change a house. For the most part, it's an energetic, happy place to be because everybody who's there has a job. By 7.45, I'd loaded the lumber into my truck and was headed to memory lane. Crackheads get up early, too. So did dealers and their dogs. And by 8.15, 
Memory Lane was hopping. As I waited for Bruce to come and open the gate, a skinny woman offered to do me for ten bucks, and then a scary-looking guy checked out the tools in the back of my truck while he let his pit bull pee on the tire. Bruce arrived and let me in. There was a forest of microphone stands where I was to build the drum rooms, so I moved a dozen or so out of the way and began bringing in the lumber just as Bruce began rolling huge speakers into the same space from the other direction. So I moved all my lumber to a new spot. Don't touch a thing, he said. It's all set to be loaded. All this gear should be gone in half an hour or so. With no room to work inside, I carried the wood outside again, lowered the tailgate on the truck, and set up my compound miter saw. It is the jewel in my crown of tools, a beautiful precision machine that looks like a steel bird of prey. It has an upright, regal bearing, but tucked under its brow is a lethal band of teeth. Pull the trigger and it screams to life, diving down headfirst onto exposed wood lying below. And then just as quickly, it sighs into silence and springs back to its statuesque pose, ready to strike again. I care for this tool as a chef cares for his knives. A young man came out through the loading door with some wood in his arms. Mind if I use your saw? Uh, yeah, I do. Okay. Bruce said I should cut these, so like, hey, let me cut them for you. Okay, I'm getting this now. Your saw's like my guitar. No touchy by nobody. Am I right? That's right. Yeah, you and me, bro. And he held out his fist for me to bump. You and me, bro. The brotherhood of gear. Each of us was defined by the tools of our trade. We stood facing each other for a second. He looked at my tool belt while I counted the bracelets on his arm. Thanks for doing this, bro, he said. We're going to rehearse in the big room, so I need these boards to make a ramp to roll in our gear. The big room? That was where I was supposed to be building. I went to talk to Bruce. Oh, yeah, it's mayhem in here today, he said. So why don't you finish the windows instead? Uh, windows? You didn't mention any windows. Oh, yeah, I got new windows put in, but now they have to have all the trim put on the outside and caulk before the window. So why don't you do that for now and get back to making the drum rooms whenever the big room is free? Cool? The windows were second-story windows, like at the addition of death. The 40-foot ladder clanged and rattled happily as I lifted it into position. So how do you think you'll make out? asked the ladder. Fine. Just fine, I growled, once I get your feet firmly planted on the pavement. The first thing to do was take measurements, which meant that both hands would be off the ladder while I used the tape measure. Nothing can go wrong unless you panic, said the ladder. Seriously, my function is to help you. I'm a tool, for God's sake. I'm built to help you. But I'm feeling such animosity here. I don't trust you, I said. I never expected you would try to kill me. So to me, you definitely are a big fucking tool. Oh, be reasonable. You had one scare and you lived, you pussy. I measured the first window and then I started back down. Except my feet wouldn't listen to my brain. You have to move your feet, Jeffrey. I really wanted to, but... I couldn't decide how to start the process. I felt sweat on my hands, so I pressed myself against the ladder because I couldn't trust them to grip for me. Where was me? All I knew was that I couldn't trust the guy on the ladder to move his feet down to the next rung. The curse of the addition of death had followed me here.
My estimate for Bruce's job was moot by the second day. I was moving from one added-on job to another and doing so many extra things that I just kept a list and spent the next few weeks working my way through it. One day I built little waist-high boxes to put amplifiers in. The next day I built eight-inch-high skinny cupboards to hold hundreds of cymbals. Every day was different. And not just the job. The whole tone of the building changed with each band that came in to rehearse. While I built touring boxes on wheels and portable stages, I was privy to their rehearsals and I felt their excitement build as new songs found a life of their own. One morning I said my usual what's up to the dealer with the dog and locked the gate behind me. As I got closer to the building, I could hear a scorching rockabilly tune coming from inside and it thrilled me. I took a moment to appreciate how lucky I was to have a life that let me move in and out of so many other people's lives. A bit of a poem by Tennyson popped into my head. I hadn't thought of it since I had to recite it decades earlier at some library event. It went, I am a part of all that I have met. By mid-November, I finished everything on Bruce's list. I was sorry to leave the exuberant creative environment of musicians and sound techies. Then again, the lounge acts were coming in to rehearse their Christmas shows. I packed up my tools and loaded out to a painfully mournful rendition of Little Drummer Boy. ¶¶ 